Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 76, what we can learn from the Asiana 214 crash with the investigator in charge from the NTSB, Bill English, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm Carl Valeri, and I'm your host this evening, and I'm joined by some of my favorite accident investigator wannabes. <laughs> welcome <laughs> welcome to the show, guys. And actually, we have an actual real accident investigator, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, I'm joined by Rick Felty. Uh, welcome, Rick. Hey there. Glad to be here. Hey. Excited for the show. And uh, Eric Crump is also joining us this evening. Hello, hello. Tip your waitress. <laughs> and uh, Sean Moody. Welcome. Hey there, everybody. Good to see you. And or hear you. At least is uh, Victoria Zyko. Welcome. Hey, glad to be back. Well, we're all excited to be here because we uh, we are accident investigator wannabes tonight. But but we have been uh, deputized for just this this one episode to be real accident investigators and try to figure out a couple things that happen and, and learn a few things from from an accident that uh, recently had published a uh, summary with uh, with actually some findings and recommendations uh, from the NTSB. And with us today is a real accident investigator who's going to talk to us about Asiana Flight 214 and what we can learn uh, as general aviation pilots from that accident. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Bill English from the NTSB. Thanks, Carl, and everybody. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is awesome, Bill. I really appreciate your coming on today. Uh, before we get started, a quick shout-out to... Uh, our sponsors, AviationUniverse.us. If uh, you appreciate this podcast, uh, please go to Stuck Mike Avcast and check out our sponsors in the right column. And also, of course, AviationUniverse.us. Some wonderful folks over there. Well, again, what, today we're we're talking to uh, Bill English about Asiana Flight 214. But you know, uh, before we get into this, I really think your job is pretty darn cool, Bill, and I think the rest of us here think that also. And one of the things we want to learn is what it's like to be a accident investigator. We have a few questions around that. So, you know, Bill, is it is it as cool as, it, as they say it is? Oh, I think so. I, uh, I'm, I'm with you all. I think this is a great job. Yeah, I get to see some of the most amazing little corners of the world and little corners of aviation that a lot of people never get to see. And you're an investigator. Now, to get to become an investigator, an accident investigator, and, and you're an, a uh, lead investigator, plus you were the investigator in charge of the Sasiana Flight 214. Um, that just doesn't happen overnight. I mean, how did, how did you get to that point? Right, right. I, my position, I'm an investigator in charge in what's called the Major Investigations Division, and they're based in uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C. Uh, and the NTSB, as you might know, is very small. We only have not even 400 people, and that covers aviation and other modes as well, the marine and rail and, and so on. So there's a handful of us who are the leaders of the GO team, 
we have those windbreakers just like in the movies. They look just like that. <laughs> and uh, there are other investigators at headquarters who are specialists in different subject matters. For example, there's air carrier pilots, there's meteorologists, there's engine specialists, uh, um, aeronautical engineers, um, performance engineers, and so on that make up a go team. That's, that's my team. We also have investigators who can be investigator in charge as well that are in our regional division and generally deal with uh, non-commercial or general aviation, and they're scattered about the country. They tend to work with very small teams and are, and are generalists also. So I came up through, uh, through the ranks in the board. I came to the NTSB in 1999. I was in the operational fact and promoted to IIC, which IIC is a lot less tin-kicking and investigating and, and much more you know, project management and herding all the cats and making, the, uh, making all the parts fit together and move together and do that efficiently and thoroughly. Um, and I've been doing that ever since, since 05 or 06. Before that, uh, worked for the FAA. I was in air traffic. I was an investigator for the FAA as well and worked in uh, flight procedures. Um, a commercial multi-engine pilot, worked in uh, some electronics flight tests, uh, flight instruction, corporate uh, world. Um, also have a lot of background in navigation and uh, uh, graduate work in, in uh, geography, geospatial intelligence. So a lot of my background comes in the navigation uh, end of the world. And my very first flying job was a flying rubberneck traffic reporter. Um, and that was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> I, I think gas was less than a dollar a gallon. Then. Wow. Well, it's, a, it's a dollar a minute now. Yeah, right. The, uh, well, gosh, you know, that's interesting. But you went right into, I assume, large aircraft investigations? or did uh, you? Well, in operational factors, we can... We, could, could do anything, but the IICs in headquarters, the Major Investigations Division, it's pretty much what it sounds. Major Investigations, which typically is uh, Part 121 air carriers, although it could be something else that has a lot of complicating factors to it. So I, I have some under my belt that are not air carriers as well. Interesting. Now, if you are somebody that's interested in going into this, I mean, as a, as a job, does that mean you got to get all these uh, many different degrees and uh, human factors, et cetera, or do they pull from a pool of many different types of degrees? Right. It's like I said, there's, there's a lot. Um, we have people who had long careers in industry and then came on with the board. So, you know, pretty senior airline pilots, for example, or engineers, uh, or designers for manufacturers, and then came over to the board. We also have people who work their way right up from, uh, as interns from, uh, particular colleges, and came up through the ranks that way and have become uh, regional investigators or specialists, all, all sorts of different things. So it's, uh, it's quite a bit of a mix. And as far as degrees go, it's, it's very different. I have, my undergrad is in, is in aeronautical science from Riddle. Um, and my graduate is you know, geospatial intelligence, which you wouldn't think has anything to do with anything. But I know people in the, in the board who have – I know somebody, I think, who has a degree in forestry. But if you've got the, 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 the background and the experience and, and the drive, uh, yeah, you could, you could make it there. And with a degree you know, or in any, anything, you, you could get on with the NTSB. But you know what? <laughs> it's a really small group of people. How many people are actually over there? Right. The whole, the whole agency is less than 400 people, and that is everybody. That's from investigators in charge 
in all the different modes that we have, which is aviation, marine, rail, hazmat, uh, the laboratory who supports everybody. And that's all, all the administrative support staff, the IT specialists, and everything is less than 400 people. Aviation is probably about 120. So if I, I mention a name, you'd probably know who they are. If they're in aviation, probably. Yeah. I remember the other day I mentioned somebody about Marine. You said, no, no, we don't really interact that much with those <laughs> folks. But, uh, that, that, you know, I, I, would, I would think you have one of these exciting jobs all the time because I know I watch the movies, and uh, it's all, you know, all of a sudden, boom, the, the beeper goes off, the phone goes off, you kick down the door, you run out to your, your Learjet, and you jump in, and you go to the, uh, to the accident scene, and... You put that really cool blue jacket with the yellow letters on the back that say NTSB, and and everybody's sitting there looking at you, saying, you know, for advice and and some directions. So that is that a good summary of what you do? Uh, almost. Uh, <laughs> it, it's not our airplane; it's the FAA's airplane. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have an airplane. Um, we do have the windbreakers. Um, the beeper does go off. We have a about two-hour window or so to assemble our team. And so we have an on-call rotation. So I'll be on call for you know, a week or two, and there's a team that's, that's built that takes that, that rotation. So I never really know much in advance who my team will be. But again, I pretty much know everybody who could be on the team. So uh, we get the, the word, and it could come from, from the media. We have a... a, a a response center. Uh, you've got all the big TVs and man 24 seven. They've got all, you know, all the, um, network media outlets, monitored internet media and, and a phone bank and everything. And those folks, um, would take incoming phone calls that would let us know that there's some sort of major event. Uh, it could come from the news, could come from air traffic, could come from, uh, you know, just the airport authority, whoever sees the event first or hears about the event first, uh, we'd get the information in there, and then they uh, they start the ball rolling for the go team, uh, which would be typically led by you know myself or one of my colleagues in major investigations. And then we'll assemble a team as best we can figure from what we know in those you know first minutes or hours after the accident. We don't always know what we need. Uh, we'd like, if we can, to throw more resources at the problem than less because you never know what you're going to find. Uh, we, we do what we can, get a, get a team assembled and, and start responding. A lot of times the, the first information that comes in, as you can probably imagine, is not exactly accurate. When, the, when you do get this call, right, you have to be somewhere? Like you said you're on call. Does that mean you uh, – let me back up. There's people that I've heard on some other podcasts saying, well, NTSB, they don't work in an office anymore. They work from home. And I don't think that's – that's not totally true, is it? Uh, yes and no. The yeah. regional folks uh, mostly are teleworkers now, um, and they're and they're scattered all around the country. So they'll they'll cover different regions and will respond to um, general aviation accidents for the most part, um, and may respond in various ways. Could be um, airline, could be uh, car, whatever, uh, depending on where they have to go. For the major team, we have to be within two hours of Washington National Airport in D.C. when we have a, a major launch so that we can respond to the FAA hangar there to get on uh, one of the FAA uh, airplanes that's, that's there at the um, uh, at National Airport. Now, we keep talking about how exciting your position is. Um, 
But it's got to be pretty grounding as well because people can be hurt or, you know, killed in these accidents. Um, how do you handle that? Is that just something you get, not for lack of a better word, used to over time? That's probably the best way to say it. Yeah, Vic, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the hazard of the job and something you have to be aware of before you go into it, that, which is why we'd, I don't think we'd ever drop somebody into a major accident without you know, cold. Uh, nobody gets to a major accident team that hasn't, you know, sort of stepped into it a little bit. And by stepping into it, like, um, I, you know, that, that could be pretty dramatic. I would assume that there's people that you could talk to and, and, uh, during this period, cause if I, I, you know, your first accident, uh, there's gotta be some type of, uh, trauma to you as the investigator, I would assume, uh, the first time you see something that's not very pleasant. It, it's possible. Um, we do have support staff that, that can help investigators if they're bothered by something like that. Um, and we, the way we train is pretty much like an apprenticeship anyway. So you're, for your first year or maybe more as an investigator, at, no matter what specific position you're in, you know, you'll be with somebody else who's always showing you the rope, stepping through, and, um, and helping you get in there. And this, um, real quickly, and then I think Eric's got a question. We, um, I'm just curious. The say you go out there and you take all these pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And you get all this information. And there's a lot on the internet, but there are certain things that you can't share with the public, and some things you can. I'm curious, how do you figure out what that is? I mean, what's the protocol? Mm, that's uh, well, there are a lot of photographs at any accident site. Um, Typically, any photographs that are taken by any of the, the participants in an accident, whether it's the investigators or the uh, parties who, who help us, the other parts of the industry, manufacturers, operators, and so on, any photos they take, any information they gather um, has to come under the umbrella of the investigation. So that's protected during the course of the investigation. Obviously, we have no control over what witnesses or, or media uh, photographs are. Now those are they public though? I mean, is that public information? I'm just trying. I'm curious. Yeah, eventually they could be. Uh, you know, our agency is covered under Freedom of Information Act, so uh, the thousands and thousands of photographs and things like that that are taken could eventually become public. Yes, but we're very uh, very careful about what we release. I mean, everyone is very sensitive to the um, the concerns of survivors or family members, and and try very hard not to. Uh, put anything out that's uh, that's prurient or, or anything like that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I actually had a question, Bill. Um, first of all, I've I've always found it really fascinating um, what you guys do, and, and I was really glad to hear your background about you know working in flight instruction and corporate aviation. Obviously, you've had a varied background, um, but one of the things that interests me the most, I guess, about NTSB reports, and I know we're going to talk about this in a moment when we specifically get into the Asiana crash, it, everybody's familiar with the probable cause statement that the NTSB releases on an accident case. But I, I don't know if many people are aware that the NTSB generates hundreds of recommendations in addition to your probable cause statements for accidents, and it's not just recommendations to the FAA. Sometimes it's to the manufacturers of the aircraft, sometimes it's to um, you know, municipalities or, you know, third-party companies that people would, like the manufacturer of the seatbelt or whatever. I I think that's really interesting. And I was wondering, 
obviously, you know, between pictures and witness accounts, you guys collect a ton of data. So could you just describe a little bit about what the, the actual investigation process, how you go through that from taking that huge bucket of data and sorting it out into not just the probable cause to determine what, what theoretically caused the accident, but how you come to all those independent recommendations to all the different groups that you, you know, provide that information to. I hope you wrote down all those questions, Eric, because that's a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, great stuff. I mean, that's, that's really the core of what we do. I mean, you, you touched on it. A probable cause is not really worth much unless you can do something about it. And that's what the recommendations are for. The recommendations are really what our product is. Um, as you say, everybody zeroes in right away on the probable cause. But recommendations are what, what make things better. Um, the, to, to rewind all the way to the beginning, one of your questions was, how do we sort all this out? All, all the data that can be generated and that's involved with something as complex as a major airline accident, we, we build sort of a pyramid structure. I, I mentioned my GO team, and, and the GO team has a structure to it of its own, and that's how we start dividing things up. So I have specialists gathering material in their specific areas, their technical areas, that are assisted by appropriate uh, people from industry, operators, uh, FAA, whatever uh, is appropriate. And, and they overlap so that we know that we're not stovepiped and we're not uh, just only looking at things too specifically. And that's part of what we do right from the very beginning. And that's really the core of my job as IIC is to make sure this 10 or a dozen different subject matter areas are covered in depth at their level and broadly enough so that they share with each other so that we get a good full picture of exactly what's going on. Those steps keep going even after we leave the on-scene stage of the investigation. For example, a the operations group, for example, who will be looking at the, the pilot's actions and their training and, and backgrounds, they'll remain even together even after we leave the on-scene and, for example, go to the, the airline and look into their simulator training syllabus and, and such like that, interview uh, other pilots who've flown with the accident pilots, trainers who've worked with them and so on, and keep that momentum going at at the same time that these other subject matter groups are also doing their other thing. And, and I have to keep that, that river sort of flowing, going in the same direction, but not getting too bound up so that they can actually find enough information for what we need to find out what's, what really matters in the accident. Probable cause has changed back and forth a little bit over the years. Sometimes you'll see accidents where the probable cause is very proximate, very close to what happened, almost a description of the accident. Then sometimes it, it changes style and gets more to a root cause, the deep background that might lead to the accident or anywhere in between. Um, but what's more important than that is the findings and the factors that lead to that to say something like, uh, I won't use Asiana as an example, just a generic, you know, to say something like, you know, the cause of the accident was that the flight, you know, descended below a minimum altitude and hit the mountain. Well, that's just a description. That doesn't really do anything. Um, but when we go back and determine why that happened, then we can get the at the core of the safety issues and come up with the recommendations to make things better. I hope that answered all your questions. 
No, it did. Thank you. That's great information. Yeah, um, I, but it raised a question for me that I think might be interesting to, to touch on, which is in your role or, or maybe it's some other mechanism within the organization as an investigation is unfolding, it sounds like because there are these specialty areas that a key part of it is is keeping everything flowing, as you said, forward, but also uh, keeping everything connected. So, for instance, if something really important, significant, and you, and you or others think key to maybe some important information comes into one area, that's got to get funneled to others to look for, you know, correlating information. You know what I'm saying? And, and that must be challenging. Exactly. Exactly right. And uh, it's important at my, in my role, too, um, to stay above that a little bit and not get myself too far down in the weeds and get too close to any one thing, because I might be wrong. The significant factor might come right. from some other area just out of left field, and, and that can often happen. And you want to observe neutrally without you know, projecting a bias at any point, probably. So it's interesting to coordinate, but not assume too much, I suppose. Exactly, exactly right. Fascinating. Are you ever working on more than one investigation at once? I'm always working on more than one investigation at once. That's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they wouldn't always be as big as Asiana 214, but okay. Okay. there's always small things um, on, on our plate. And do you, does your group only deal with accidents by definition, or do you also deal with incidents and things like that? I'm sorry, you broke up. Whoever just asked that. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, your group, do you deal specifically with um, accidents by definition, or do you also deal with incidents as well? Could It could be both. Could be accidents, could be incidents, depending on the significance. In, in major investigations, typically it's accidents – because that's what becomes major. But for example, we've, we've run some very significant incidents, some that didn't even um, come under part 830. For example, you remember, what was that two years ago or so, the uh, Northwest Airlines that uh, went lost calm and flew hundreds of miles past their destination. We actually did an investigation on that, even though it, it wasn't an accident, it, but it was a, um, a you know safety issue. Okay. From this data, though, that you're, you're, I'm trying to figure out how do you get back to a piece of data that someone interjected at some point in this investigation that at one point you thought, oh, that, that isn't important. And then two weeks later, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Someone mentioned this. Now, where do I find that? Because I know when I was searching online, uh, you know, this is going to be embarrassing to admit this, but I was l- looking at the docket trying to find the copied voice recorder for the, this flight, and I said, gee, this is a little bit tough to find it just in this, this docket of pull-down menu items. I mean, how do yeah. you, you know, you have to have this incredible memory, I guess. Uh, well, yeah, the docket, the docket should help us. I mean, that, the, a lot of people aren't uh, aware of that. Let's, let's just describe what you yes. mean by the docket. Um, there's a lot of, of products and ways that the NTSB investigation material is put together. Um, you know, you mentioned we've got a, a summary of the final report for Asiana is out. The full report is, is done. It's, it needs probably by the time people hear this or maybe shortly thereafter, the full report will be published. And that's a 250-page report that uh, consolidates all that material that we have gathered. And that's, that's all the um, – uh, how we got to that that summary that you can see as we record this. Um, the public docket is another um, 
record of all the material from all the different subject matter groups that's been agreed to by all of our um, subject matter investigators, by the parties who participate with us. In the Asiana case, it would be Boeing, FAA, Asiana Airlines, um, Pratt & Whitney, et cetera, et cetera, who all uh, assisted us in the investigation. So everyone gets together and has agreed to, yes, this is the true and complete and correct record of everything we've gathered. Uh, the docket system is the official way we do that. And there's always you know, internal computer ways to keep track of files. But uh, like you say, yeah, that's part of what I have to do is remember where all this stuff is and <laughs> make sure it doesn't uh, get into what we call fact creep. You know, we forget about something, it drifts away, and then uh, you know, two or three weeks later you realize you're not where you were uh, anymore. Fact creep. That's a that's a good term. I was trying to remember what the what that was called. That's yeah. and and it can easily happen on something this big, on investigation because you have so many things happening all at once, and then so many distractions that are happening, especially with Asiana. You know, I mean, from before, like, how did that happen? I mean, you you got the call and you went over there. All this stuff starts hitting you. It's like getting punched in the face. Like, oh, I got this, I got this, I got this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> how do you stop this? It's like, stop. Yeah. It's a fire hose I'm trying to drink from. Right. I, I, that's right. But uh, unfortunately, that's what I like. That That's the best part for me is when it's just all breaking loose. Uh, what does the fighter pilot say, right? A target-rich environment? Yes. That, that's what I think it is. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That, and that sounds pretty darn exciting you know it's it's right. like oh my gosh here it comes and um and it's all being thrown at you all at once uh, the the other thing that's kind of interesting or very interesting about your job is is media and uh you know you just talked about it before that you rely on media uh for some information on an accident because that may be the first way you find out also part of that media now has become social media and how much do you actually tend to rely on that now well, that's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, you know, we, you have to acknowledge that, that the media is there. And it takes a different role at different, uh, different facets of the investigation. Uh, media can often be our first source of information about the accident. We understand that you know, it's going to be distorted. That's just the nature of communication. Um, a traumatic event happens. Witnesses don't really know what they're looking at because it's so different. So we understand that. In this case was amazing. I got the first call and my boss said, Oh, a triple seven cartwheel at uh, San Francisco. And we're like, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. Right. It's just, we had pictures in our minds of the Sioux city accident in Iowa, that, um, the DC 10 accident that you might remember. And then we saw pictures in the media of the airplane, you know, overhead helicopter shots. And it kind of looked like an airplane. There was a fuselage and wings sticking out it was right side up and next to the runway. And then we thought, no, that can't be right. That must be distorted. You know, it, it couldn't have cartwheeled. And then we saw the security video and the way the marks were on the runway and thought, wow, that was, that was actually correct. Um, so so there's, there's some of that in the, in the initial stages. You have to put a little bit of a filter on it, understand what you're getting, and, and that's fine. Um, there were a lot of uh, social media um, events immediately thereafter. People were literally just barely off the airplane and, and we're tweeting and you know, of photos of their accounts of it. Um, we can use some of that as, as evidence and sometimes do. It gives a good picture sometimes for the survival factors folks about exactly how uh, the timeline played out, where people were uh, and, and did somewhat in this case. Um, 
as the investigation goes on, then again, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, we, the board, try to get good, solid, factual information out to the public. Our, uh, our chairman at the time, who was on scene with us, gave, gave many briefings with that. We have a very active uh, uh, media uh, office at the board that uses traditional and social media to get information out. Uh, from my standpoint, I can't control that. I, it doesn't change what I'm going to do. It's just another part of the environment. Uh, you know, I, I say I go to accidents and sometimes, you know, the accident happens and I get there and, and a blizzard moves in, or it happens to be in, in a jungle where there's snakes or in an area where there's, you know, pirates or something. And well, it's like that. It's just something I have to deal with and you just deal with it. So do you think this social media and the ability for people to take pictures has helped you and made your job a little bit easier? I don't know about easier. It's, it's just different. Uh, because typically somebody who's just taking an iPhone picture, all, all I'm getting is a picture of an airplane with smoke coming out of it. Uh, it. It can be useful to help build a timeline, but for the most part, airports and, and places like that have security cameras, so that help, does the same thing. Um, maybe if you're not at an airport, could be handy. <laughs> so we, it's not so much media, I think, that, that makes it easier, but we have a lot more devices that can capture data. So uh, I know the general aviation folks are uh, inundated now with GoPros. Uh, every general aviation airplane has a GoPro on it. So they're pretty rugged. They, they don't handle fires too well, but if they don't burn up, you get a pretty good record of what happened in an accident with a GoPro. Yeah. Besides photography and video, are there any other like equipment you bring out to the field to use to in your investigation? Oh, absolutely. Photography and video is part of it, but by no means uh, the only part. Uh, at, at any investigation, we have very, very uh, thorough surveying of any accident site. Asiana was one of them. We have an agreement with the FBI uh, to use their evidence response team to take uh, GPS and laser surveys. They call it total station equipment uh, surveys of the site, which uh, basically marks every uh, part that is, you know, wreckage part, every uh, what we call witness mark, which are the scrapes on the runways or broken trees or things like that, um, to take a, a complete 3D uh, survey of the site. And then tools as appropriate, uh, whatever tools and things you might need to do things like examine an engine, uh, to uh, to do quick quick tests on uh, on certain components and whatnot out in the field. A lot of times that just entails packing it up and sending it to a lab. Um, so the, yeah, there's there's quite a bit that we do there. Just uh, some of it's just your basic, you know, tape measure and um, things like that. You mentioned FBI. Do you have like a team that that works with them? Like during the periods where you don't have accidents, and uh, you know, update them on information. I assume you have some liaison in, in a lot of, of not just FBI, but in general uh, with the other organizations, government organizations, some some uh, different communications going back and forth, and a, and a large dialogue. I assume. Right, right. We have someone at the board who's a specific liaison with the FBI and other law enforcement or other agencies to help leverage resources like that. It's no. It, it, it's not a smart use of taxpayer money to have, you know, two two of us doing the same thing. So we we just leverage each other. So so when the media says, "Oh, the FBI's on scene," it doesn't mean that's it's bad. It it's kind of a normal thing for the FBI to show up. 
Exactly right. It does not mean that there's a crime or any such thing. They're they're just there. They've got the resources and the tools to help us. It's good training uh, for them, so it's mutually beneficial. Interesting. You know, and that it kind of brings up some other things in the media that you hear. Like I, I was listening to the media the other day, and and someone was saying, "Well, aren't you angry that the NTSB did not institute any any laws uh, to prevent X Y Z from happening?" And uh, you again. All you do is you make recommendations to different organizations, in specifically the FAA, primarily in your case, I should say, and then they can implement laws or they can come out with recommendations themselves, etc. So you don't make any laws. That's right. We have very, very limited. There, there are well, not laws, but regulations. Regulations. Um, yeah, only Congress can make laws. Only but, Congress makes it. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, we have a, a tiny, tiny little subset of regulations we can make, but they're about things like preservation of wreckage and stuff like that. We don't even make the regulations for things like flight data recorders. The FAA actually makes the regulations for what's on a flight data recorder, not us. Hey, Bill, one of the things that I was really interested in, and I think Asiana may have been one of the first examples of this, was we were talking about social media use and you guys sort of gathering information potentially from what you find on social media. But um, it's really interesting to me that it's become more of a two-way thing of when your investigators get on scene, documenting what you find there, and then putting a lot of the, the pictures out. I mean, it seems like almost in real time from the scene. So those of us who are sort of armchairing it and just kind of watching and closely just really interested are able to really get more of a sense of what's happening out there. How did that sort of come to be? And, and you know, what's the experience been with that so far? Um, that's grown over the over the few years. Our, uh, our former chairman, Herzman, was very, uh, very active in uh, developing our media presence. Uh, it's not something that I deal with on a day-to-day basis as to how it developed, so uh, I'm afraid I can't really um, answer that. Uh, I, I just know what happens. Uh, there, are, We have specific media folks who, who do that with us on scene. Uh, so when I'm working the investigation, I'll be working with our media folks and the board member on scene uh, to, to help give them the um, – the information that that can be released, what's appropriate at the time, what we you know what we're sure we know, um, and get that out. Uh, as far as how it developed to the point it is now is, is I'm just not something I'm really familiar with. Bill, this is pretty cool. I mean, we, we let's move on to the Asiana, but uh, one thing I really want to talk about, which I think is kind of cool, and and we never got to talk about on uh, Aviation Careers is the go bag. What what uh, oh. what do you have in this? In this super, can, can you share what you have in this super secret go bag, and what is it? <laughs> it's nothing, there's nothing secret about it. It's it's just a bag with a bunch of stuff. So, for my job, which we didn't really mention, I, we kept talking about Asiana. So, uh, not every launch is like San Francisco in the summertime, uh, and you do have to sort of work your go bag for the conditions you're in. I can be launched to anywhere in the world, really, under our Annex 13 uh, uh, obligations. And in fact, most of the time, most of what I do is outside the country and can be in some pretty rugged areas. So I've got all kinds of things. I, th- there's the basics. You want your protective gear for uh, your general protective gear, you know, good boots, a, uh, 
uh, personal protective equipment that uh, you, you've seen the little bunny suits that we wear that protect against various uh, types of hazards, whether it's biohazard or things like carbon fiber and such like that, uh, breathing respirators, gloves, uh, again, environmental things, hats, sunscreens, bug sprays, all sorts of things like that. Uh, got the malaria pills, um, you know, water purifying tablets, uh, a camelback. I love a camelback. That's a, that's a, a great thing to have because then you can stuff all the little things you need in the, in the backpack part and lots of hydration to get to where you need to go. If you're in a place like, you know, the jungle or, or desert kind of terrain, um, yeah, various tools, uh, different specialists are going to carry different things. Uh, the tools specific to their job, if they're, a, you know, an engine person might have a, a small, uh, bore scope or something like that, that they might use, uh, the, um, uh, again, depends on, on what their specialty is. So largely what my job entails is communications gear. So I've got a lot of that as well, you know, being able to, to manage all the, the data that comes in. Um, but it's also environmental, environmental protection. We do go to some pretty remote locations. So we carry uh, uh, the uh, locator beacons, uh, spot, I don't know if spot's a trade name, but you know, the, uh, the little GPS uh, thing that can beam to the satellites if we get in a, in a pinch someplace. And uh, lots of good uh, you know, general type of um, do-all type, type of tools, like a roll of caution tape, roll of power cord. Uh, I don't know how many Leathermans I have. Lots of those. Duct tape? So, Got to have duct tape. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, with, I mean, between duct tape and a Leatherman, you could pretty much do anything. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Sounds like Mary Poppins' bag. Yeah, you know, you yeah. pull out a lamp and an yeah. umbrella and everything else. Is MacGyver. Any, yeah. MacGyver, right? Yeah. And pixie dust, of course. Yeah. Just have pixie dust, but uh, well, that's pretty cool. And you know, this is really neat stuff. We could we could talk for hours on on this and, and the excitement of being in the NTSB. But you know, we we did we did grab you to talk a little bit about uh, Asiana Flight Two Fourteen and and some of the things we can glean from that. Uh, in the general aviation world, uh, so so let's talk a little bit about uh, Asiana Flight 214. And uh, just as a, a quick summary, there was a Boeing 777 uh, Asiana Flight uh, 214, which uh, was on a visual approach to San Francisco's 28 left, and uh, it it uh, it landed short. It struck the seawall uh, short of the of the runway, and uh, it uh, actually caused an accident. Obviously. And I think there was what here, here we go three uh, 291 passengers on board and uh, three of the passengers uh, were fatally injured uh, during that. There's some really interesting things though that that come from this accident. We haven't had an accident in a long time, uh, as far as in the airlines. And this this accident here was one that you know I was looking at saying, gosh, how could this be? How could this have happened? Well, you know, we 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 look at things and we say, gosh, you know this. This couldn't happen to me, but you know what? We can. We can learn from a lot of the different things that happened here. And what what we have is we have an abstract in front of us, and we're going to talk about some of the things in the abstract, specific some cool things about uh, about bigger planes and airlines. We're going to talk, but we're also going to talk about things that that apply to us as general aviation uh, pilots and and what we can do uh, as pilots and how we can look at this accident and and, and make ourselves safer. Uh, in, next time we go flying, by actually studying this accident. So, uh, Bill, if you don't mind, we're going to ask you, you know, some questions and and get your feedback on on certain things here. Um, but uh, but going through this this accident here, uh, you you uh, were 
the investigator in charge. Now, I'm assuming, and you can uh, tell me differently, this, this summary, this report summary, was that primarily written by yourself, uh, the summary, or did, uh, was it a team that put that together? Well, the summary is actually written by a, a professional tech writer. Mm-hmm. So what we, the, the actual writing is, uh, has a lot of steps to it. Each of my specialists writes a, both a factual report, which is just a document of you know just the facts, ma'am, um, and then an analytical report as well. Public doesn't see the analytical report; that's internal. Where it, this is all the specialists basically telling me what they think of their own particular area. Um, I get together with the uh, the writer. Uh, we have a specific person who is assigned to do just that. They they are a writer. Um, and we consolidate all those together into the full report, which, depending on when this, uh, this goes online, should be about uh, released at that point. About 250 pages long report. Very, very thorough and in-depth. You can look at our past reports uh, that are, are similar to that. This summary is just a distillation of that report. The report exists. It's just getting formatted and everything as we speak right now, and this is a distillation of the final report. Okay, interesting. And that, and this is this is really good actually. I really love this summary uh, because there's so many talking points we have, but there's so many things that we can go over. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through this this piecemeal and as we go through it, you know, we did you know, I said it didn't make it to the runway, but there's what happened and we have to figure out why. By going through some of these recommendations, we're going to also explain certain things that are key elements uh, leading into this this accident. There was many things to learn from this, uh, certain things about firefighting, etc. Uh, of course, we're not going to go into those issues as much, but, but what can we glean from this? Um, first of all, uh, the first item that I, I want to go over is uh, they talk about uh, in uh, things that need to be discussed in, in this report and, and need follow-up, they, uh, there's a discussion about adherence to uh, standard operating procedures uh, regarding call-outs. And uh, right. I thought that was pretty interesting in that you're in a two-pilot crew and one person uh, changed to what's called flight-level change mode uh, and did not call that out, nor did the other pilot recognize that, that flight-level change. I think in the – and I don't know much about the G1000. I think it might have a flight-level change. Uh, Eric, do It you? does. Okay. Yep. And I don't think it, it may or may not operate the same way, but what happened here is that during the approach, uh, pilot flying actually uh, selected flight level change. But uh, when they did that, it actually uh, started to go up because they were on a descent and the selected altitude was 3,000 feet, uh, which in any flight level change that I know of, and I'm assuming G1000 does this too, it'll start to, to go to that targeted altitude. Is that correct, Eric? Yeah, so it, it's going to arm. It's going to arm your altitude, um, and then instead of climbing at a vertical speed, um, you can set. You know, in, in a G one thousand environment, you can set by vertical speed, or you can set by um, flight level change. You know, of course, in a GA airplane, I mean, a small GA airplane, anyway, you don't have the auto throttle issue to deal with. You're still the pilot's still responsible for the power setting. Um, but yeah, so it it's basically the same principle, right? And it, it's it's identical. It's identical. Okay. It, the the Garmin one thousand flight level change and the Boeing triple seven flight level changes they work exactly the same. So if you don't put speed yeah. in, you're you're not going to uh, you know you don't put power in, you're not going to climb. Correct. That, okay. And so. The triple seven has an auto throttle, so if it's configured right, 
will do that for you. But as just as Eric described it, he got it exactly right. Right. But yeah. but this uh, this topic we're talking about now by not uh, you know actually complying with SOPs. Uh, the part of the SOP or standard operating procedure that wasn't complied with was the actual call-out of flight-level change. Now, in the airline world, we talk about standard operating procedures, but if we look at our own small airplanes, and uh, you know, I have certain procedures that I have that I try to, you know, accompany into my incorporate, excuse me, into my my general aviation flying, and those are my standard operating procedures. I know on the university level, uh, they also have that, uh, but I think. Eric actually has a, has a fairly extensive SOP. I think you had mentioned it's going to it's a many pages long. Describe what that is and why why are SOPs so so important, Eric? Sure. Um, well, in my opinion, anyway, um, if you're preparing somebody to be a professional pilot, you do them a service if you prepare them for the environment that they're going to operate in. One in which there aren't just regulatory requirements, but there are also individual policy requirements, and those policies will change as you go to different aircraft or different operators or even a different seat from left to right. Um, so from a, from a professional pilot training mentality, I think it's important to teach SOP adherence, but we don't just do that from the perspective that we expect all our pilots to go fly for the airlines. Quite frankly, I, I don't expect that to happen. What, uh, what we approach it as, as um, a mindset toward aircraft operation and it's not just a list of things you have to do or the order in which you have to do things, but it, it's a, a tested, data-driven approach to a, an attitude of flight safety. And I think that's, that's the key. It's, it's not just a checklist. It's, it's literally the difference between doing something correctly and safely or not. And beyond just saying, okay, well, you know, here are the SOPs for this particular operation, one of the things we encourage, actually, in fact, we require our students to do is to build uh, personal minimums for themselves. And you think, well, what does a, you know, a student pilot know about their personal minimums? Well, if you, if you give them the experience of, well, what are your capabilities? And then we regularly have them revisit those personal minimums to evaluate whether they should be raised or they should be lowered. Um, not, of course, not for one instance of a particular flight, but in a regular review cycle. So we teach them, when you leave this environment, maybe you're not going to go straight to work for the airlines or for a 135 operator or whatever the case may be. So if you're out flying on your own or you're flying privately for somebody, your personal minimums become your SOPs to a certain extent. And you should be looking at those and revising them on a regular basis. But again, it's not just you know, adherence to the words on the page. It's an attitude towards safety. And I think that's, that's an important distinction when we talk about SOPs. And those SOPs are actually online. If you were to incorporate them into your life, they become your operating procedures. You know, you have, uh, you know, those personal minimum checklists and all that the FAA has, they have those for a reason. Uh, those are incorporated into your own personal operating procedures. And you can find those. Actually, there's a lot of that stuff for free, by the way, at FAA.gov or FAAsafety.gov. Interestingly, I I would and I would, I don't know if we can answer this question. Uh, maybe Bill can shine some light on this. I wonder how many accidents. Uh, I know there's a lot of incidents, and how many accidents have been caused by non-adherence to SOP. That'd be pretty interesting to find that out. Oh, that's that's not uncommon at all, and not. Uh, they called it the professionalism forum not that many years ago, in which the the board looked at. Uh, many years worth of just that type of thing 
maybe not SOP specific, but that type of uh, of idea, standardization and all. Right, and and we do see. Uh, I know where I work is as far as uh, any you know different outside operating outside of parameters and uh, incidents are. A lot of times, it's just not complying with SOP. Yeah, uh, that's for yeah. sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, SOP, you know, I mean, SOP is there again to help you keep ahead, uh, get get you into that mindset of what do I want it to do rather than reacting to what is it doing. Right. Right, and, and and as a GA pilot, we have that where we can we can have our little li- you know there's really cool checklists out there you know those like two sided checklists I forget what they call them but um, I used to have one and I re- I remember in the top corner would go over those things like I am safe and I, I can figure out if you know that's part of my SOP um, but uh, but yeah very important you know the and Eric if you don't have anything else to add to that I'd like to move on to the next item uh, that I think is is really interesting. Uh, one of the, the things that came from this is talking about reducing the design complexity uh, and, and enhancing the training on the airplane's auto flight system. Well, you know, as pilots, we don't we aren't part of the design section, but one of the things we can do is is look at the auto flight system. And I know in uh, when I started flying the 182 that I was partners in, I had to really learn the system that was was in that aircraft, and and realize that there are certain limitations to that. Uh, a, a real simple thing is, you know, you're flying on an airway and you assume the autopilot is going to turn onto the next airway if there's a bend in the road. Well, some autopilot systems don't do that. And, uh, you know, that was something that I didn't realize when I was flying on an airway, flying IFR. I was like, hey, you know, the old saying, you know, what's it doing now? And And I realized it kept going straight and I wanted to go right. Well, I didn't realize that you know, we didn't have the the turn mode on ours, so I had to actually put in heading mode, then actually join up onto that, you know, onto that airway. In this in this instance, it has to do a little bit more with uh, the auto flight system, uh, where you know we're talking about uh, flight level change uh, and also speed mode and and understanding those modes of operation. Um, I don't know now, Rick. You in your aircraft that you flew, you you had an autopilot, right, and it had some complexities to it, I assume. Uh, yeah, it did, and you know, and I initially uh, training was sort of, you know, when you start out, you're not trained to you, you know, you don't they they don't kind of want you to use it because you know they want you to fly, and then eventually, as as you're getting more comfortable, it seemed to me it, it occurred around the the uh, long longer distance flights, um, you know, start using it for for you know, kind of, you know, holding a heading or, or uh, altitude. Um, and yeah, and, and one of the thoughts I had as it relates to any of that kind of equipment and as it relates to GA, and I had this thought when I was flying early on, was, man, it's easy to get uh, comfortable not actually flying the plane or not actually controlling the control surfaces yourself. Um, and, you know, there's a whole subtopic we can talk about, which is monitoring these systems. But for me, I remember making some choices that, okay, on this flight, I'm going to, even though it's a long flight, I'm going to, I'm going to fly the, I'm going to fly the thing myself. I'm, you know, cause I didn't want to start counting on that. And, uh, and it seems to me that sort of the idea of, uh, sort of stick and rudder skills in GA, um, you know, being maintained, even though there's ways to simplify, um, you know, the complexities of a cockpit. That was something that occurred to me, and I and I tried to make sure I, I did that. I did so I wouldn't get, you know, complacent and or rusty. So, 
That's really important to, to click all that, that stuff off, you know, and get, get to the point where you're actually controlling that aircraft. But, you know, going back to that monitoring, we can talk a little bit about that now. Uh, actively monitoring. Um, it's sort of you know, like what you were a, saying, instead of what's it doing now, what do I want it to be doing? And, and so there's right. a little bit of both. But, but if you're ahead of the plane, you know, that was always the thing, was stay ahead of the plane and the situation you're in. And um, so you, you're, you're, you know, deciding what happens next, even though it's going to automatically happen, you know what's going to happen, as well as looking outside of the plane to figure out where you are, where you might have to go, all those things. Um, yeah, it, it's and it's real easy to not to sort of get comfortable. And I was telling, telling a story before we got on, on the show, which was uh, I remember getting really reliant, you know, in a way on in practice flights on the actually after that on um, the GPS and uh, and it, you know as I said at one point it, it faded out you know it didn't have uh, enough uh, it didn't triangulate enough satellites or whatever to 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 display uh, an accurate location and so it didn't and I was so reliant on it in the moment I mean as I said I knew where I was on the planet generally but I didn't really completely know I hadn't been to the airport I was heading to and I didn't know what to what it would look like and I knew I knew the general direction to head but I started circling. Uh, to get my bearings because I had gotten in my mind lazy uh, about counting on the on the GPS and uh, figured out where I was headed in the right direction. GPS came back, you know, it's a good story in, in the end. But at the time, I got a little nervous because I was too reliant on the GPS. And that really uh, is a big surprise when that stuff fails. I mean, it's you're sitting there like, oh boy, what you know, what's it doing now? But also, uh, you know, what's it doing now because something has failed. And that's why actively monitoring is incredibly important, uh, especially you know during an approach with with airspeed. And we'll go into that a little bit later. It's just, are you not only monitoring you know your autopilot, but also the systems and and the throttle? Are you monitoring your airspeed? Uh, that's one thing that you know I used to always train my students is always glance down at the airspeed. You know we can get really lazy. I mean I, I've done it. You know it's like, hey, I'm going to go here and punch it in and go direct, and it's like, oh wait a minute. Hmm. What's that little, you know, circle? Oh, prohibited area. Yeah, I better not go that way. And uh, you know, so you you got to be really careful, especially with TFRs, and you can't just separate yourself from the airplane. That's something. You know, we talk about this with airliners, but you know, it's happening in general aviation. Just as as Rick gave as an example, there's there's many examples in GA where where we do disconnect ourselves from the airplane, and and I've done it. You know, I've been on a long cross country, and it's like autopilot on. Man, it's time to lounge back and listen to the music, enjoy life. And uh, but you should always be thinking, hey, where's that next field? Where am I going to, where am I going to be be landing next? So that's is super duper important. Um, but you know that that's and the term, by the way, that's used a lot uh, in the auto flight systems is is automation surprise. Uh, one of the ways to get around automation surprise is through well, number one training, but also number two is experience. And and that comes from years of actually flying that aircraft. I tell you, uh, you know, I've been flying this particular airplane for a little over a year and a half, and really comfortable with it. But there's still things that kind of surprise you. Uh, and the same thing with any airplane, and and, and with a lot of automation involved. Uh, but that that's some good stuff. There's um, moving on to the next one. Unless somebody else wants to talk about the auto flight systems, um, we um, looking at this from. A flight instructor's perspective, and there's some. Uh, I think just about everybody here has either worked with a flight instructor or, or wants to someday maybe become a flight instructor. Is um, 
you know, supervising pilots, you know, uh, during during the instructional period. You know, this is something we always go over with uh, new instructors, and I've taught a few new instructors, is that the first thing you're doing is flying the plane. The second thing you're doing is teaching. And every so often flying the plane is, is inter- you're interrupted in flying the plane, as, and it, teaching is gone by the wayside. So you interrupt the teaching. I know... Uh, Eric, you're in charge of quite a few instructors. How do you how do you help them make that transition from okay, here I am as a pilot, but now I need to I need to take my control away from just just looking at the instruments, but also teaching. And how do I prioritize that? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I think part of that, and again, it goes back to you know an SOP process. But one of the things we do with new instructors, um, I think the traditional model is, you know, okay, great, you're a flight instructor. Here's a new private pilot applicant. Neither one of you know what you're doing. Go knock yourselves out. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not saying that it can't be done, that there aren't good instructors who do that. It just seems to me that you don't want to put a completely inexperienced flight instructor with somebody who doesn't know how to fly an airplane. Because now you have two people with low skills doing their respective jobs. And I think a lot of this recommendation stems from that same thing. You have a a new instructor captain um, with a new captain. Um, And I I think to some extent there, that's a a common model that we see in GA, um, a common issue. And I think it's something we we maybe want to look at. Um, You know, for example, with our program, um, new flight instructors don't teach primary students. They start with commercial pilots. Um, because that was the thing they did most recently. They understand that. They know how a, an RG or an arrow works, for example. Um, and they know those regulations because they just had to learn them. Um, and, and it makes sense, in my opinion, completely just my thought there, to to start that way and to allow the instructor to build up experience. And it's not just going out with a student, have a good time. We We strongly promote mentorship and observation in our program. So new flight instructors aren't just turned loose with students. Um, they're mentored, mentored for their first semester um, as a flight instructor um, to, you know, get guidance from somebody who is more experienced, um, who, you know, understands the SOP process. Um, they'll do that instructor, the mentor instructor will do ride-alongs. They'll do ground observations. Um, and, and not not from a punitive perspective at all, but simply to enhance um, the quality of instruction. And by the way, that's not just for the new instructor. I can't tell you how many times I've heard senior instructors say, you know, I was flying with this guy. He's got 300 total flight time. And the way he explained that steep turn, I had never heard that before. But that, that was a really good teaching approach. I'm going to keep that for later for myself. Um, and when you deal with people who aren't as automation knowledgeable, but they're extremely good flight instructors. They learn a lot from the people who came up on automation. And and I think there's something to be said there about the ability to learn from each other. Um, And I'd just be interested to hear because, you know, Bill, I know you have a GA background. I'd be interested to hear, you know, your thoughts on that connection between 121 and and GA flying. Yeah, I think, you know, Eric, you hit on this really well. This particular accident was a great parallel for that where we had in the right seat a very senior captain but new at being an instructor in the left seat another pretty senior captain he was he was not inexperienced at all but very new in this airplane so there was a 
not the traditional you know, people have talked about power gradient, authority gradient type of things, but perhaps a little bit of role, uh, if not confusion, a little bit of role ambiguity over who really was in charge of what. And when you look at uh, the interviews that they said, it was it was a little bit unclear what they even thought about who really was going to be the final authority to, for example, initiate the go around. Wow, that's interesting because you know yeah. when you get in an airplane, two instructors are are usually the most dangerous. The, that's the most dangerous flight, um, you know. Whereas in this case, especially you had a, if it's me and Carl, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's why Eric and I don't fly together except in the simulator, <laughs> and, and that didn't that didn't end well either. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, it, and this is you know, all kidding aside, this is this is really interesting because I would have thought that, and most people would think that here's a here's a captain with lots of experience. You're going to shove them in the right seat, and it's not going to be a big deal because you know if you if you've been flying a long time, you've seen and heard a lot of distractions, and it's like oh no, this is no problem, I got this. But it's different when you're teaching, and especially teaching somebody that uh, you know doesn't have a lot of experience, and all of a sudden there's instead of automation surprise, it's it's pilot next to you surprise. Right. Whether that was on on the instructor's mind in this case or not, I, I don't think we ever really could tell, but. Again, you do. You, you can't really do effective instruction, as you know, if you if you don't let the person push it a little bit. Right, right, mm-hmm. and that's where the training comes in. How how far do you right. let it go? Exactly. Uh, and uh, this, you know, definitely went. This went too far. Uh, right. But it also, like you said, roles, understanding right. what roles are, et cetera. Right. <laughs> and this was a snow. I mean, you can see from all these findings that we had here, there was no particular one thing. That went wrong and then suddenly did this. All this was a snowball rolling, rolling downhill, getting bigger and getting bigger, and no, nothing failed, nothing, nothing broke, uh, but this snowball just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when, at what point do you observe that it's getting out of control, and and when do you have to uh, to to step in and stop it if if you realize that that snowball is getting big enough? Interesting. Yeah, that's. Uh... That that snowball hopefully uh, melts before it gets to an accident. It didn't in this case. It, it, you know, it probably that hap- that probably happens a lot, but we never know. Right, right. Interesting, great stuff. Well, uh, moving on to the next thing that that they talked about this and guidance. We just got a couple more that we're going to go over and try to relate them to general aviation. Uh, it, and, but this is pretty fascinating too. So let's let's get a little bit into the technical side of airlines. Uh, it talks about guidance uh, for pilots on the use of flight directors during visual approaches. Uh, I know uh, in the automated aircraft that I fly. Uh, when I see the airport, a lot of times I turn everything off. I'll leave the the auto thrust on, but uh, everything else, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, looking out the window and turn the flight directors off. Uh, a lot of times, what happens in these aircraft, and, and you can talk about this on on the Boeing bill, but uh, on the on the Airbus, if you take your flight directors off, it's going to hold whatever speed, the approach speed that's actually uh, either set manually or that was uh, calculated within. The flight guidance system. Uh, so, you if that if those were turned off and left off, that probably would have kept that speed. But the, when you turn the the flight directors on and say you're super high, and I've actually done this and and got real high, and it said, "Hey, go down, go down." What the what the thrust starts doing? It brings it to idle, and you're pitching up, pitching up, and you're still flying straight, and you're slowing and slowing and slowing and slowing. Eventually, something's going to happen. And uh, the the usually what happens is the on like the Airbus, your uh, your thrust will come up automatically, and you're going to be going around. 
Uh, on the Airbus, it's a, or excuse me, on the Boeing, it uh, might be uh, slightly different. But is that is that similar to what happens on the Boeing? Yes, I wish this was a video podcast instead of an audio because I think a picture would make it easier. Uh, but I'll kind of step through technically what if if that's what you want. You want yeah, me to get sounds kind cool. of technical about this um, as to what was going on under the hood, so to speak, with with this airplane. Um, Initially, before the engagement of, of level change, the, the airplane was in what was called vertical speed uh, mode on the, the auto throttle. So on the auto, auto flight, it's AFDS, Autopilot Flight Director System. So the autopilot computer, the brain, whatever your particular manufacturer calls it, and I think actually Boeing and Garmin call it the same thing, AFCS, is sending a command to the flight director, and if you have the autopilot engaged to the servos or whatever to, to drive the airplane. So it's showing you what, what you want to do via the flight director, or it's doing it through servos. Either one keeps that thing going. And then what, that's what was going on with these guys, descending at whatever it was, 1,000 feet per minute. Um, that wasn't enough. As you mentioned before, you talked about the... Um, then they engaged a level change. They had already selected 3,000 feet in preparation for a go-around. The pilot flying realized, I'm too high. I'm here at three and a half, four miles, wherever that was, and I'm way too high. I have to do something about it. And what it looks like is he, he hit level change thinking, well, when I do that at altitude, it, it brings me down quickly, forgetting or not realizing he had the 3,000 in there. So now the airplane was trying to climb to 3,000 feet. Everything in the system was saying, oh, you want to go to 3,000 feet at whatever the speed was, 137, 150 at the time. So the pitch of the airplane headed for 3,000 feet. The power started to come up to maintain that airspeed. He then realized, oh, this is not what I want to do. Disconnected the autopilot. So he's now disconnecting that computer from the servos. And manually pulled – I'm talking with my hands here. I, you, you can't see me. Manually pulled the throttles back counter to the command. That then told the system, oh, you don't want this? Fine. You got it. We're going to go into this hold mode on auto throttles. So they're still working, but he basically told the auto throttles, don't do anything. I'm, I'm just going to pull you to idle. And the system says, okay, I'll just stay here. With the flight director still up, the autopilot is still calculating and doing what it's doing, showing flight director to commands as to how to get to 3,000 feet at 137 knots. If the airplane ever got to 137, uh, I'm sorry, to 3,000 feet, those autothrottles would have come back up and said, oh, cool, here we are at 3,000 feet, up we go, we'll fly along. Um, but of course, they weren't going to get there because he was descending. So the system was now confused. He did two different things to tell the system, I got it, but then he didn't follow the flight director. The flight director commands are still there in front of him, telling him how to get to 3,000 feet, but he's not doing it. At this point, the computer doesn't know what he wants, so it just doesn't do anything. Uh, later on, they, tried to, they switched the flight directors. Had they switched them both off, both the left side and the right side, now think about how I described the autopilot system. He had disconnected the servos. He would have disconnected the flight directors. At this point, the autopilot part of the system is basically off. The auto throttle would be looking at the autopilot saying, what do I have to do to be compatible? 
oh, it's off, I will go to my default mode, which would be speed, which would power up and hold 137 knots and fly along. But it never saw that because only one flight director got turned off. One remained on, still sitting there on the right side showing commands of how to get to 3,000 feet. So the system didn't know any better. It just stayed there in that hold mode all the time. That, that if, if they had flicked both those flight director switches off, that would have melted the snowball. Coincidentally, but it would have melted the snowball uh, at that point. And they, they, who knows, they might not have ever have realized that it had happened. There's no reason for that flight director to be on. They weren't going to 3,000 feet. It was showing information that was not accurate. And that's one of the recommendations that we've got in here is, is changing that, um, that procedure or uh, method that they had of cycling you know, a flight director, leaving a flight director on that's not really showing valid information. It could have coincidentally brought that power back up. None of this changes the fact that, as you mentioned before, airspeed is right there, path is right there, and this is the other problem. We talk a lot about airspeed, but again, there were two things going wrong here. Not just airspeed was decaying, but path was decaying. So the airplane was slow, and it was very, very low. This airplane really never stalled. It never, ever actually entered a stall condition, but it was too low and in too much of a low energy condition, speed and altitude, potential and kinetic energy, to get out of that bucket and miss the seawall. And that's yet another one of the recommendations we have. We can talk about these factors and these findings and say, oh, you should have done this with the switches, oh, you should have done this, but that's what gets us to the important point of a low energy situation is the problem. Let's start looking at how you get into and then how you get out of a low energy situation. Was that too technical? That was perfect. That was outstanding. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was excellent. Great explanation of that, and and flight directors in general. But the uh, so I, I I'm gonna we're gonna go back and rewind that and and give that to everybody so they can learn how how these flight directors work. But I think does that also tie into SOP because normally uh, when you're doing a visual approach, you turn those flight directors off so then the autopilot comes wakes up and says, oh, I know what you want me to do. You want me to hold speed now, but the auto thrust does. Right. That might not be the reason you do it, but that's what would happen. And one of the good reasons also would be you don't want to have guidance up there on your displays that's telling you something that isn't really what you want to do. Right. right? right. They, they had no intention of going to 3,000 feet. Why have something in front of you telling you how to get to 3,000 feet? That makes sense. Yeah. You know, but when you flick those, auto, those uh, flight directors off, I know a lot of people just follow those you know, everywhere. Uh, when you turn them off, some people get a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that, and, and again, we're going back to manual flight, but there's a couple of things we didn't really talk about is the fact that by manual flight, you were, were controlling the airspeed and the altitude, like you said, and, and we, they've gone below that vertical path. And there was something that kind of disturbed me in, in uh, one of the safety meetings I had is I had a, a pilot come up to me and say, well, you know, when is it that we don't have any guidance? That's very, very, very rare. Uh, so, you know, what's, what's the big deal? And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, there are times when you're pappy, and I think they had a pappy here. Uh, yes. Four, four yes. lights. The four lights were red. Red is bad. So you want to go up. And there's, you know, there's also your uh, ILS. Well, that was out of service. But there's also some markers that are on the runway. And uh, they're big white markers that you can look at and you can aim for those points. And that is something that you can do with your eyeballs. And if you're flying an airplane, 
I personally feel you should try not to use any of those, you know, uh, do it on a VFR day and, and real bright out. Let the person next to you know this. Try to fly visually with nothing else. Get rid of the localizer, get rid of the glide slope, and just look at those points on the runway. And you know what? If you start just concentrating on that, you can probably put that right, right exactly where you want to put it. Uh, if with just a just a few seconds of flying, uh, just manually, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of the things that we we kind of as general aviation pilots can't conceive of is somebody who all day long is just looking at you know the glide slope and the localizer and just following that blindly. Uh, you would never if it was not indicating correctly. Would you fly into the ground? Well, you shouldn't. If if you see that it's failed, you should not fly that. I've had a localizer actually fell. Actually, what happened is that the tower controller turned it off and uh, was switching runways right after my, my landing. And uh, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, where's my localizer and glide slope? And uh, he's like, oh, I thought you said you had the runway in sight. <laughs> it's like, well, no. And, and he turned it back on for me. But you have to, you just don't blindly follow it down because what happened is when he switched it to the other runway, it wasn't indicating properly for me. I was like, oh, okay, terrific. You know, now what do I do? But you have to be part of the machine. You have to be part of the program to, to actually recognize those issues. Um, and, and I think, Eric, I think we, we talked about this as far as manual and flying, et cetera. We've kind of said, hey, listen, we need to do more, more manual flying. Rick's alluded to that. Um, I really, there seems to be this common theme that keeps coming up in a lot of conversations I'm having lately. And, you know, Bill, you can probably talk towards this. Are, are we really becoming those type of pilots that, that just sit back and push buttons? I am. I'm learning how to fly drones. So, I know you yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're lucky to be doing that. That's so yeah. cool, Eric. Yeah. I and mean, Bill, that, that's really, really neat. Uh, I, well, Seriously. I, you know, you're not the only one who thinks that. I mean, if you can see we talked about it at the board meeting. I mean, the FAA just released a, a huge study back, uh, what was it, in November or February? I, I don't remember exactly. Uh, that talked exactly about that about uh, automation over reliance and that thing this is it's a very hot topic in the um in the airline world right now i think there was very just recently uh was it airbus or yasa put out recommendations on uh, uh on more manual flying practice and training on uh, on the airbus you know one of the most highly automated airplanes there is so um getting back to basics is never really a bad idea no i think it's terrific and uh you know i i'm in general, and I'm not talking about the people I just work with, but in general, and I speak with people from many different airlines, uh, there's a lot of folks, maybe 50% from what I can tell, empirical evidence only, is that, that are very uncomfortable turning all parts of the automation off. In other words, they'll turn the flight director off, but not the thrust. And we need to get to the point where we can turn all that off and, and just fly. It's a lot of fun, too, you know? And that's well, we yeah, uh, you know, two folks, t- turning it off and flying and also, you know, being ahead of it when you're using it, you know, making sure that it's your tool and you're not you're just reacting to it. Yes, I, I agree with that because it's it's does, you know, even all this automation, I feel, and that's the point where I am, I try to make it fly a lot smoother than the automation will. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's one of the challenges you have. And, and by being in front of the airplane, uh, you can do that, but if you're just sitting there watching it go, that's not going to happen. Right. Gonna it's happen. funny. I have students ask me all the time. It's like, well, okay, but if if the airplane is capable of this level of automation, 
why don't we use it? If it's capable of doing it, we should be using it. And I, I, I feel like, and I, I think it's just a, um, you know, your experience. I mean, I learned to fly on, you know, a six or more like a four and a half pack, you know? So, um, again, and I, I understand, I understand the transition from analog to glass and, and, the, and backwards too, from glass to analog. But a lot of our current pilot population come up in pure automation from day one. And I have to remind them, these students all the time, and even to some extent, um, you know, faculty members, especially the ones who come from the airline environment. You know, look, we've been landing airplanes without automation for a long time on in, from the airline perspective and from the GA perspective. And not to say that the automation isn't a great tool, but it, it doesn't replace the fact that you still need to know how to fly and, you know, physically manipulate the controls and physically land the airplane. And I think when we have all of those, um, I don't know, I I think when we have all of that stuff available to us, I think Carl, you said before that maybe we get lazy because it will do all that kind of thing. And, um, and I, I think that that's a danger, but, and that's again, not to go back to a previous point, but Bill, that's why I love, the fact that you guys put out the recommendations in addition to the factual information, because that's a key for people, even those who don't fly in the 121 environment to look at this and say, okay, well, how can I apply that to my kind of operations? And GA over-reliance and automation is a big deal. And, um, and we have to deal with that just the same as the airlines do. Well, gosh, Bill, this is, this has been awesome. I mean, we've, we could go on for hours. This is just some, some, uh, some really really cool stuff, and and you know, uh, we're kind of at that hour mark. If you know, would you mind coming on again someday? We could talk some more about some other issues because there's there's many topics we can talk about. Yes, and, please. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah, <thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy you. You guys dinner aren't next too time. bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, why not? That's, that's all right. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things before we we close, this has been some really good information. We've been able to glean some information about Asiana and and um, you know what we can pull away from that as general aviation pilots. And uh, you know, in any accident investigation, you have to keep in mind that there's you know there's people that. That have you know their their careers and their lives uh, have been affected in some very dramatic ways, and just keep that in mind while you're while you're talking about it. And you know we <laughs> obviously what we're trying to do is try to to bring this over to the GA side of things, and I, I think we've done a, a great job. And Bill, having your background has been awesome, being able to make that leap between the the airline and the accident investigations into uh, into the general aviation world, and and that's been awesome. Uh, but you know, as from a fun side of things, what's what's next for Bill? I know we we just touched on it. Uh, what are you doing with drones? I, I don't want to leave without talking just a minute about oh. that. Well, just trying to figure it all out. That's a collateral duty I have at at the board is developing our investigation capability for uh, the um, burgeoning market there on the commercial and civil side. So. Uh, trying to get smart on those. I've uh, been taking a lot of different training on uh, different uh, unmanned platforms and uh, and trying to capture that. Uh, once again, it's interesting to tie the the things together. You can you can tie parallels between five hundred thousand pound airliners and five pound drones. <laughs> and uh, in you know you're you're actually going to be doing this, and you're doing this where in Florida? I think is doing your training, right? Uh, 
Correct. Yes, I, I did a I did a course in uh, in Florida. Yep. Yeah, and uh, so when when are you going to take me out and show me how to fly these things? Uh, to, to give you a ride. Yeah, yeah. To give me, a, give me, a, give me an observation. A drone no. ride. Well, yeah. you keep you talking about getting camera, bigger, so. bigger drones. I'm assuming there's a drone that could actually carry me. Or possibly. Oh, I'm not touching. I'm not touching that. <laughs> I've, I've met Bill. Yeah. We, we had di- we had dinner the other night. I'm not touching that. <laughs> oh, you have to choose. Do you want the GoPro camera or Carl? <laughs> Well, Rick, you you had before we before we wrap this up and and get on to to, to drones that can actually car, carry somebody Carl's size. Uh, you had, wow. you had one more serious. There's question. a show topic for episode yes, the is. next episode. Um, yeah, it was just a general like putting with given all the major <clears throat> investigations, uh, you know, ma- major airline kind of situations that you've had to deal with, Bill. How this one sort of ranks or, or f- finds its way into continuum from lots of data pretty well intact because of the conditions that you know that, that were specific to the incident versus situations where like there's there's you know there's not much data known or there's much less and um you know how how, how that affects it how how, how does that affect uh, speed of, of the investigation how does that you know is, is there a way to is there a way to categorize that are they all about the you know are they all the same or are some just the answer more, is, yeah go ahead oh i'm sorry we had a little skype thing there yeah so just the question you know the general question is you know is an investigation investigation or there are some where where the data presents itself much more easily and much more clearly and much more quickly and how this flight might have fallen in that kind of a continuum. Uh, was this, uh, you know, do, do you know what I mean? Because you've investigated so many different kinds of situations. Right, right. I, I mean, I've done, you know, triple sevens. I've actually worked on both the in-flight triple seven accidents that there have ever been, was this and, and London. Mm-hmm. We had tons of data. Data is great at telling you what, sometimes. Right. In London, it was not that great at telling us what. There huh. was a lot of, of investigating and uh, science projects to actually figure out really how that happened um that that's another a whole other podcast but um they don't always necessarily correlate because data can tell you what it has a hard time telling you why it it's almost impossible to tell you what somebody's thinking so it data as far as digital data flight recorders videos are are great i mean they, they can tell you all kinds of what's um, making it significant, determining the whys, uh, mm-hmm. doesn't always necessarily correlate. I've had accidents with hardly any data at all, but you could figure out the what pretty easily uh, yeah. and the why pretty easily and, and vice versa. It depends on the scenario, too. Yeah. You know, the, sometimes the data just doesn't lend itself. We try to guess in our world what data we'd want, and right. it's just law of averages. It turns out the next accident surprises us. Right, right. Interesting. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Great question, question, uh, Rick. That's uh, something that 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 I, I would always thought that more data would be better, but you know, like you said, it's it's, it's what, not not why, that type of thing. Because that man with two watches kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good example, and I don't even have a watch. But that, that that's not another issue. I'm droneless and without a watch. But uh, that's what phones are for these days. Uh, exactly, exactly, and they tell the time. They have an E6B, etc. Well, guys, you know, Bill, hey. Thanks for coming, but this has been just awesome. Uh, we've learned a lot from you, and uh, it's been wonderful. Teach, you know, you're teaching us and 
and discussing things that we're all passionate about. And I think that's something that's really neat about Bill is that, you know, Bill's not just an accident investigator with the NTSB. He actually does love aviation. Um, and you can kind of tell that through through his discussions. And, um, you know, we, we talk aviation and, and get into the nitty gritty about uh, instrument approaches. And uh, that that's a lot of fun. And we could talk about that for hours. Uh, but uh, Bill's a real good guy. He's actually uh, yeah, just and one of the sharper people out there that I know. And that's that's good to see that you're actually within the NTSB, and I'm I'm glad there's people like you that are investigating these accidents and uh, and making recommendations. Bill, I, I again I appreciate your, your being here, and all of us at the Stuck Mike Avcast uh, appreciate having you on. And and by the way, if if anybody has questions, they can just go to stuckmikeavcast.com and and go to the contact page. We'll if you don't mind, Bill, we, we'll uh, forward some of those questions on to you if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me here. It's uh, it's always great talking with y'all. Awesome, awesome. And Bill, we'll we'll definitely follow up uh, with you later. And uh, you know, from from myself, Carl Valerian, uh, Eric Crump, also uh, Rick Felty, and Sean Moody, and Victoria Zyko. This is uh, just been a wonderful time discussing. But we're going to have you back on. If you're out there listening, safe flying, and I hope you learned something from our discussion with. Bill English, lead investigator, investigator in charge of Asiana for the NTSB. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.